All right. Um, thank you very much, Marlon. And uh, with that, we are going to pass it over to Phil Clark, who will get the discussion going. So he's going to do a few minutes of response to the speakers. And then after that, um, are we going to take questions or just everybody uh, just kind of – we'll, we'll take rounds of questions uh, for for everyone uh, or for both speakers. So. Great, thanks. Um, my role is, is really just to be very brief and I think to give some initial responses to the two presentations with the idea that that might sort of help spark some discussion. Um, with the caveat too that I hadn't seen the two presentations before, so these are very sort of off-the-cuff um, sort of responses. Um, I've got sort of three brief um, responses, I guess, to, to each of the presentations and I'll, I'll start with, with, with Irene's um, talk. I think that the first thing to say is uh, it, this approach of IRDP, particularly with your debate spaces, as you call them, I, I think is a really important one. And I think to, to put IRDP in context in, in Rwanda, I think we have to recognise that they are a very unusual civil society organisation. Um, and I think several people around the table working on Rwanda will, will know what this means. Um, but civil society clearly... Uh, struggles against uh, the constraints um, that the government places upon them uh, in the Rwandan context. And I think what, what IRDP do that perhaps other civil society organisations aren't always able to do is, is to do firstly very systematic and often very nuanced fieldwork, but, but also to in many cases be very critical of government policy and to maintain this, this very independent role. And so it would be interesting, Irene, maybe to hear a little bit more from you about how exactly IRDP is able to do that when very few organisations in Rwanda can fulfil that kind of role. How is it that you're able to maintain independence, you're, you're able to maintain a very critical voice and essentially not get shut down or not see your work sort of significantly constrained by, by government policy? How do you kind of get away with it, <clears throat> I guess, is, is sort of the, the, the question. So that would be the, the first thing. Um, the, the second dimension that I thought was really important coming out of your analysis was your reflection that one of the challenges for IRDP is, is to maintain a sense of cohesion and debate within your own organisation. And I think this is something that, that, that's already come up in a couple of our discussions as this colloquium's gone on, which is that you know, for, for many human rights and civil society organisations, it's not just the challenge of dealing with the political context that you find yourself in, but, you, but you, you've got divisions and diversity within your own organisation that, that has to be navigated. And again, I think it, it's, it's, it was a, a really telling part of your presentation that, that IRDP spent a lot of time just trying to deal with those internal ethnic divisions, the diversity of people coming back to Rwanda from, from different contexts. Um, and so again, I think uh, uh, maybe it would, it would be interesting to hear you say something maybe a little bit more about that those sort of internal challenges um, and the importance of taking care of your own backyard before you try to say anything about the society at large. And then the, the third um, issue that I think comes out of, out of your presentation, Irene, is, is that the issue that you kind of raised right at the end about um, research methodologies in post-conflict situations. And, and you, you made this comment about how you often have to use particular methods to reach particular audiences. And that IRDP had started with a, a very um, sustained approach of 
uh, these debate spaces, quali qualitative research, focus groups, spending long time you know, in, in communities, but then having to switch towards a more quantitative approach, particularly to try and get the attention of policymakers. Um, and I, I think that's interesting because it, it was something that I think came up on the last panel yesterday, was having to kind of talk a language of, of, of impact that policymakers will understand. But I wonder whether there's a danger that we lose something in that process. And something that's always struck me about IRDP's reports is that I think your qualitative material is almost unparalleled in the Great Lakes in terms of the, the depth of research and the, the difficult nuance that you engage with. But the statistics have always seemed very separate to me. Um, they, they, I've always got the sense in your report that they were almost kind of tacked on at the end. And so I, I, I wonder whether rather than sort of having to pander to a particular policymaker um, tendency, which is to just give us the numbers, whether there's not a way of actually getting policymakers to engage much more with the, with the complexity of, of the, the, the qualitative material. And I'm wondering in the Rwandan context whether you see openings for that. Uh, to what extent can you get policymakers to, to really engage with the qualitative material and, and perhaps put the, put the statistics in, in a different context? So, so that, those, I guess, would be sort of three... Um, initial responses to, to, to your presentation. Um, similarly, I've got, I've got three, I guess, brief comments on, on, um, on Marlon's um, presentation. The, the first one was coming back to this 2007 report um, that, that you mentioned, which emphasised the need for Brazil to meet its international obligations to, to prosecute um, very serious crimes. It struck me that this was a, 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 an interesting issue, particularly when we put it alongside Tim Becker's presentation on the previous panel. And, and what's interesting to me, I think, is, is to, to look at the South African case and the Brazilian case side by side and ask, why is it in, in some context that we're not seeing legal and political momentum towards prosecutions, and in other cases we are. So why, what I'd be interested to hear you maybe say something about is what, what is it in the Brazilian case at the moment that even makes it possible to advocate for these particular prosecutions? Is it an issue of historical timing? Is it an issue of a change of government? Is it the, the willpower of particular individuals within the system, such as yourself, that enables that? Because one of the obvious questions that, that I had in, in, in Tim Becker's presentation was, why aren't we seeing that kind of momentum in the South African case? That you see this you know, sort of enormous transition in 1994, which includes a clear out of the judiciary. You see a huge political change. And intuitively, you might think that actually that gives a motivation to the, the new regime to actually want to pursue prosecutions, that actually you'd like to separate yourself from the legacies of the past. And so it, it might also equally be a question to you, Tim Becker, is you know, wh where do you locate the resistance within the system at the moment? You know, is it the culture of amnesty that has so captured the South African discourse that, that blocks this sort of momentum towards prosecutions? Is it because actually a lot of the previous leadership has remained in place, that certain judicial officials have remained, and so there's a sense of continuity? Um, is it simply because South Africa has other objectives now, and so prosecutions really are off the agenda? I mean, so to try and get a sense of, you know, what, what is it that, that causes these, these shifts towards um, a desire for domestic prosecutions? Can, can we get a sense of what the motivations are? Secondly, there's clearly, and it's connected to the first point, but what's interesting, I guess, in the Brazilian case is, again, this issue of the timing of transitional justice. 
So, so the fact that we, we're now talking about um, both prosecutions and the Truth Commission 40 years after the, the, the crimes um, in question. And it links back, I think, to some of the discussions we had yesterday in terms of the discussion of the Spanish case, uh, Kath Collins' um, presentation. It's an issue that comes up in the two, the two books that were launched last night. This sort of issue of post-transitional transitional justice. What it raises for me is the question of what is the role of transitional justice in those particular cases? Because this is clearly a very different type of transitional justice. It has a different momentum. But it strikes me that it has a different role. It's not so much about pursuing transitional justice as part of a transition. And I think, I think Kath made the point quite clearly yesterday. It's not even really now transitional justice in terms of democratic consolidation necessarily. So what is it exactly? You know, within Brazilian society, how do you define the larger role of this push for prosecutions and the establishment of, of, of the Truth Commission? What, what, what is the role that it's playing? The third point, again, um, just that, that I think was interesting in, in, in your presentation was it, it came up very early on, this issue of the importance of identifying remains, um, which again I think is, is something that comes up in so many of the, the cases that we've looked at, and I think it's a really important one in the Rwandan case as well, that, that what drives I think much of the momentum for truth-telling and truth recovery in the Rwandan case isn't this sort of very abstract desire for truth about the past. It's actually very, very personal. It's very intimate. It's people saying, I need some truth about the past because I want to know about my loved ones. You know, it's very individualistic, you know, or it's very family-based. Where are the bodies buried? Um, can we exhume those remains? And can we rebury people in, in an appropriate fashion? So it's interesting that, you know, as academics, we often talk about truth processes in, in, in grand sort of almost national narrative style ways. But I think something that's come out of some of the presentations yesterday, and I think it comes out of the Brazilian and the Rwandan cases, is, is just how personal people uh, are motivated, um, particularly to, to, pursue, uh, to pursue truth processes. And, and it's worth keeping that in mind, those very personal dimensions. So just some fairly um, scattered thoughts to, um, to maybe get, get things rolling. Thanks. All right. Uh, thank you, Phil. And now we'll uh, go ahead and take questions. If we could ask you to uh, introduce yourselves. Just